credits roll There's always more to tell Especially when the video sales are doing really well From shock treatment to Jason X To Police Academy 6 This is Sequel Cast And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise Until the better end This is Sequel Cast Hello and welcome to the Sequel Cast. The Sequel Cast is a podcast that looks at movies in a franchise one film at a time. We're at the middle of looking at the Rocky films. This time around, we're looking at Rocky IV. It will break you. No, it's just called Rocky IV. Uh, released <laughs> in 1985. Um, with me, I have Thrasher. Hey, everybody. And I have a special guest we've had on the show. I think last time we had uh, him on, he he meant he talked about uh, Die Hard Two. Uh, he's the author of Action Speaks: Louder, Violent Spectacle in the American Action Movie. Eric Lixenfeld, welcome back to the Sequel Cast. Thanks. It's great to be here. And also, I'm the author of an essay on the Rocky franchise that's coming out in an anthology called The Ultimate Stallone Reader, and it's coming out like in a matter of weeks. Oh, nice! I didn't know about that. Wow, that's just. Uh... <laughs> Added uh, added bonus. So the Stallone Reader, uh, Ultimate Stallone Reader, this is going to uh, be a collection of essays. Is it about his different films, or it can be like thematically? The anthology is about Stallone as an auteur, as a star, and as an icon. So it looks at different facets of his career mm. um, as a writer, as a director, uh, as a stylist, as an actor, um, what he means in top in terms of pop culture. And um, my essay is about how um, the, the, the many different ways that Stallone um, brings out the theme of self-worship in the Rocky movies. Mm, right. And there's no shortage of, of material to write about there. Right. I mean, especially in, in Rocky Four, and we'll talk about the plot in, in a moment, but it, it's really about Stallone. He's, as the character of Rocky... He has the right advice to Apollo in the beginning. He's always right. And, you know, Apollo doesn't listen to him, and he dies for it. Well, you know, he's always right, and, you know, and Apollo doesn't listen. Um, Adrian doesn't listen. You know, the, the characters yes. in – the supporting <laughs> characters in Rocky Four are basically there to be wrong. Right. And in being wrong, they make Rocky right. <laughs> Which is kind of a reversal from the from the other films where Rocky, like like where Rocky is getting from Adrian, from from Mickey, uh, e- even from Paul, from Polly and Apollo, he's kind of getting the things he needs to make himself a better, a greater person. Mm-hmm. I mean, before I even saw Rocky Four, um, it was a while until I saw this movie for some reason, but I did own a, a compilation Rocky soundtrack called The Rocky Story. <laughs> That, that has tracks from one th- half of it is the soundtrack to Rocky Four, basically all the, all the pop music. And so when I saw Rocky Four, it's like, oh, this is how they're using the music in the movie because half of Rocky Four is a music video. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you, I forget what the running time of the movie is, but it's if about you ninety take, minutes. I think it might be yeah, the shortest film. Right, and if you take out the credits, the end credits, <laughs> and yes. if you take out the music videos and the montages. <laughs> It's yes. a, seriously, it is a ridiculously short <laughs> running time in terms of plot you know, and, and, the, and the story developing and advancing. It's, it's absurdly short. Yeah, I mean, politically, Rocky IV is a much simpler film than, say, Rambo Three. although Rambo Three, I think, in retrospect, it, it gained some importance uh, post-9-11. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching this now, I just could not stop and think of the current um, Russia-Ukraine-Crimea mm-hmm. conflict. Yeah, you know, that's that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it in, in that context. Um, you know, Russia is, is back in the public imagination in a way mm-hmm. that it usually is not, uh, and certainly isn't often since the end of the Cold War. Um, so I can, I can see why you'd make that connection. I mean, to me, you know, the Russia of today, is, even with Vladimir Putin's aggression, is still so different... Um, as far as a presence in the imagination, it's so different than the Soviet Union was in the 80s um, that, to me, they're, they're just different entities. And, you know, Rocky IV is very much about um, about what the USSR was in the 80s. And, you know, and that's why it's, it's sort of a perfect emblem of its time. 
So, Thrasher, what did you think of Rocky Four? You've been watching these Rocky movies uh, pretty much for the first time uh, as we go through them uh, these past few weeks. Well, the, this one, well, Rocky Four is is the one that I think I've seen the most of because oh, okay. right right around the time I graduated from college, um, there's a, a lot of people, including the network itself, has forgotten that AMC stands for American Movie Classics. <laughs> And there was a about a year where Rocky Four came on like twice a weekend. And American movie classics where you go to get cutting edge TV shows. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. And at the time, at the time, they only showed Rocky Four, Jaws three, and every now and then a movie from World <laughs> War Two, and that was it. Uh, and and I just for whatever like that year I just remember watching and rewatching this movie over and over again. I know I wa- saw it at least once with you, Matt. Uh, several times with Jason. Uh, several times with uh, my roommate of the time, uh, Mark Feminella, who's right. uh, now co-host of the Pod Bay Podcast. And I just saw a lot of this movie and may- possibly even too much because like it just. It, I, I kind of really got into this movie just because there is a, a real level of absurdity to this film. Certainly. I mean, we have to talk about the robot that Paulie gets as a present. That's, uh, yeah, the 1980s dumb. robot. <laughs> yeah. Now, let me look. Did Rocky Four come before or after Short Circuit? Uh, I believe it's before. Let me this see. Rocky yeah. Four is 85. Okay, so maybe Short Circuit, the series, was inspired by this moment in Rocky Four. Well, I, I certainly don't think so. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, Short Circuit was, I think, the spring of 86. Yeah, okay. um, so it would, have, it would have already been on its way. But, I mean, that is the most 80s thing I've ever seen. In the recent uh, Muppet movie, just called um, Muppets or whatever Muppets. it is, uh, you know, they have a, something called 80s Robot that looks just like this robot <laughs> from Rocky IV. Um, but basically, I was watching this, I'm thinking, Don't you know... Don't forget the robot from Space Camp. Robot from Space Camp. Who could forget the <laughs> robot from Space Camp? Um but I'm watching this and I'm saying, you know, everything that robot uh, can do, my fo- my iPhone can do, and I can put that <laughs> in my pocket. <laughs> play, play music and make boop beep sounds. And uh, it talks back to me if I talk to it. That's Siri on there, and uh, yeah, and I like how he picks up the phone from the robot, but it still has a cord connected to it. <laughs> they all had cords at that time. Hey, do you know the robot's name was Seiko, and it was voiced by. The CEO of the company that built it, Robert Dumick. Uh, Dumick. No, Robert Dornick. I'm sorry, Robert Dornick, not Dumick. I, I I did read an interview with Stallone uh, from a few. And ain't it cool news? He did uh, an- answered all these reader questions, and one of them was about this. And Stallone said something along the lines of that he had seen a demo of this robot at some trade show in Vegas and was so impressed by it. He's like, "Oh, we got to put it in the movie." So, um. well, isn't it though the <laughs> ultimate symbol of both American ingenuity but also American excess? That's a good point. Yeah, and I'm not sure if that was in- intended, but it certainly adds to the uh, the patriotic career. Yes, that, that's true. <laughs> I mean, look at the box office when '85 came out; it was pretty incredible for Stallone, the number one film. And I'm talking about domestic box office, I, I believe, uh, boxofficemojo.com. Uh, the 85 was Back to the Future. Number two, Rambo, First Blood, Part Two. Number three, Rocky Four. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's Stallone's Stallone's track record of the 80s is really interesting. You know, he's looked at today as you know as so emblematic of the 80s, which he was, but also as having you know, as having ruled the 80s, which really isn't true. You know what you're what you're pointing out about the box office in 85 was his peak. Yes. And that, you know, you were, you were only halfway through the decade, uh, or maybe a little more than halfway through the decade by the time that year was out. You, within the same year, um, at least, you know, within the same 12-month span, you also had Cobra, which failed. Uh, later, you had, over the top, a disappointment. Right. Rambo 3, a disappointment, a mm-hmm. big disappointment. Yeah. So, really, 1985, maybe the few years leading up to 1985 were sort of the flashpoint for Stallone. And it you know, represented something in his career that never came again. And actually I'd, I would like to point out uh, a connection beyond the obvious connection of Stallone between Rocky four and Cobra. Cobra also features 1980s robots. That's right. <laughs> in the photo shoot. 
Yeah, you know, the, the the first three Rocky films have some decent character moments, and you get a little bit between Apollo and Stallone in, uh, in Rocky IV. But uh, one moment near the end I thought that was interesting I wish they would have done more of is it's before Rocky is facing uh, Drago in the ring, and Paulie sort of makes a tearful confession to Rocky. You know, I, I've been so hard on you, Rocco, because I've always just wanted to be you. I want to be in that ring with you right now. And it's an interesting beat for Paulie who basically falls in the snow and talks about how he wants to have sex with his robot friend the whole time. <laughs> well, I think you have to keep in mind, yes, it's Paulie's moment, but who wrote that moment? Sylvester Stallone. Sure. Again, like, oh, you look, I look up to you the most. Right. Right. So, so yeah. Stallone is always having these characters reflect glory back on himself. Mm. You know, uh, one of the moments uh, that I write about in my essay is uh, in, in the Ultimate Stallone Reader in, in Rocky IV is when um, uh, the Duke is, uh, or Tony Burton, is yeah. um, kind of giving him the pep talk before the fight. And when they're in Russia, and he says, you know, you're the one who's going to do this, and you're the one who's, and you're the one. And I, I can't remember all the dialogue off the top of my head, but what sure. I do remember what I wrote about was how he keep, how both in terms of Stone's writing and in terms of Burton's performance, he keeps stressing the words, you're the one. And, you know, again, it's, it, there's so many things in the series as a whole, and in this movie in particular, that are just constantly reflecting glory back on Stallone. You know, um, that is what these, char- these supporting characters exist to do. He also reminded me a lot, uh, when he, you mentioned that, of uh, Colonel Troutman in Rambo, especially mm-hmm. in First Blood, all those monologues that he, he gives. He's like, you won't believe this man, uh, R- Rambo John Jay. He's a, he's a machine. You won't right. be able to catch him. He's awesome. You know, it's, <laughs> it all boils down to Stallone is awesome. We do well, I guess that in a way that's almost natural because I'm because sh- I'm sure the studio approached Stallone to do another. Although maybe you can enlighten me because I could be completely wrong, but I'm pretty sure like the studio probably approached Stallone to, to do another Rocky movie. Like, well, if I'm going to do another Rocky movie, I'm just going to make it all about me. <laughs> now, was, like, was this was this movie made at the request of the studio, or did Stallone really want to do a fourth Rocky movie? I think you know? he wanted another hit. After some stuff he did. I mean, before this, he did, like, Rhinestone. Um, he directed, oh, geez, Staying Alive, which actually was a pretty popular film that year. But um, So I don't know. I mean, I think it's it's his meal ticket. He goes back to Rocky more than he goes back to, to Rambo. And Rocky Three was a big hit. But that, Rocky Three was not necessarily expected to be huge, and, and it was. Well, they were all big hits until Rocky Five. Um, yes. Here's some interesting trivia for you. Um, the original idea for Rocky three was going to pit it's Stallone's original concept for it was going to pit him against a Russian fighter in the Coliseum. Mm, okay. Yes. Right. You know, the, the real Coliseum, not <laughs> the Coliseum in Philly. And, um, he started thinking about sort of different themes and, and about stardom and the effect stardom it had on his, on his life and decided that that's the direction he's going to take Rocky three in um, but obviously, he held on to that idea uh, and evolved it for Rocky IV. Yeah, inter- I didn't know the Russian part. I, I did know it, at one point in an interview with Roger Ebert, he mentioned he wanted Rocky to die in the limo on the drive back from the Coliseum of a heart attack. Mm. At, at his height, he would have died. Uh, he would have gone well, out. I'm not sure. I'm top. not sure which which sequel. Uh, that exactly would have been for because there was an idea for Rocky two where um, and I don't know if Stallone wrote this or not, but it was an idea that he, that he developed at least to a certain point that took Rocky out of the boxing world hmm. that okay. after Rocky's um, uh, moral victory, let's say call it against uh, Apollo at, at the end of one Rocky becomes this beloved public figure and actually goes into politics. Huh. And he becomes, I think he becomes mayor. I'm not sure. And there he's exposed to all the corruption and, and it becomes, you know, more of like a, a 70s political drama. And yeah, that, that would have been a, a very ballsy take on a Rocky sequel. Yeah. Certainly. Um, and, you know, of course, the plan for Rocky V is originally he was supposed to be beaten to death in the streets. Right. 
Yeah. No, sorry, let me interject for a second. Are you, is this cra- are you hearing this crackling? Or is that just me? I, I'm hearing it when Matt speaks, but not when you speak. And okay. I'm not hearing it at all, but it's recording everything, so I think we should be okay. Okay. Um, but thanks. Uh, yeah, what... Uh, Thrasher, what do you think of the the score in this? You know, this is the only Rocky movie that's not scored by Bill Conti. It's scored by Vince DiCola. And I, and I don't mean any disrespect to him, but the I don't remember any of the music in this movie except for uh, the the montage, the the training montage music, and the uh, and the rendition of "Living in America" that James Brown does. the the rest The rest of the like the rest of the soundtrack. Uh, uh, just just fades into the background for me because those songs are so. In the case of James Brown, that song is so big and bold and brassy and overpowering and dominating. And in the case of the uh, the the training montage music, so emblematic of nineteen eighties training montage music. Which training montage? <laughs> There's a couple of them. Sure. Well, I, I always think of the, the the big one where like they keep cutting back and forth between Rocky chopping wood and Drago hooked up to all these machines. So what I love about that soundtrack um, and in and in the movie, you have um, a montage with scored by the song uh, "Burning Heart," and then like minutes later or less, <laughs> a montage, another montage. This time to the song "Hearts on Fire." Yes. <laughs> But one thing that's, that's really interesting um, about Living in America, I found when I was doing my research a marketing memo from the studio oh. that, was, that, that was pretty comprehensive. It talked about a lot of different things. It talked about the soundtrack. And in, the, and in this memo, it was really more like a marketing guide. It lists the song as only in America. Hmm. And I started thinking, now, maybe that could have just been, you know, a Freudian thing that somebody was typing or maybe, and this is my this is my pet theory. Yes, the song was originally only in America, and which would have the same cadence as "Living in America." Sure. Only in America is Don King's signature line. Mm, right. So, so what if the song was only in America, but for whatever reason, Don, they couldn't do it; and they had to change it. And in the movie, and I, I, when I started thinking about this, I looked at the sequence again, and I'm pretty sure that if you, that when you look at, at the performance of, of Living in America, you never see James Brown singing Living in America, the words Living in America. You always see the backup singers. When, uh, the, the backup singers are always on camera when you're hearing that, and that would have been much easier to replace than James Brown. Definitely, that's fascinating, and also only in a changing it from living in America, you know, having it be only in America originally, uh, presumably, that makes sense with the, the cockiness of um, Apollo Creed mm-hmm. coming down into the ring. And who is the villain in Rocky Five? Yes, a Don King. Don uh, King. Basic, yeah. <laughs> Including yeah. the hair. Mm-hmm. And the voice. So, so this is the great mystery of, of film history that I want to solve was living in America originally only in America and that they had to change it because of Don King. You, you could be right. Cause I'm doing a, just a little bit of, of research on the song and it did come out the same year as the movie. So, you know, it's, it's entirely possible. He had it all recorded and ready to go. And just before it reached prominence, you know, he got a cease and desist letter from Don King's people. Well, I, and I believe, I mean, I, I believe, I mean, the song is on the soundtrack album, so I don't believe it was a, was it a standalone song? Was it, was it, was it a James Brown song prior to the movie? Or was uh, it, it was released as a single in 1985, although I can't find a specific date for when it was yeah, I think it was released as the first single from the soundtrack. That was, um, right. I, I recall, vaguely recall that from the memo. And, yeah, and that's the an interesting... Video, the music video uses clips from uh, Rocky Four. Right. I mean, I think it was all, it was always part of Rocky Four, And, you know, it, it's, and when you compare the, the albums, what I think is so interesting is that obviously the most iconic song from the Rocky franchise, um, well, it might be a toss up between, um, gonna fly now, but I have the tiger. Yeah. I have the tiger, but I have the tiger, as I recall, is the only real single from the Rocky three soundtrack and the rest of it, I, of the album, I think, or at least the majority of it, is the Bill Conti score. The Rocky well, there was also album, the, 
the the take take her back. Take it back. It's oh, on, the, take it back right. on that soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. Right. And the Rocky Four, but the take but take it back was not a single from Rocky Three. It was actually I think repurposed from Rocky One. True. But um, Rocky Four has very little score on the original soundtrack album, and it's mostly pop songs. Correct. And that goes with you know this very heavy music video. Uh, you know, for, for a franchise that was really into montages and music videos, this took it to you know the stratosphere. I admit it's very strange to see Rocky uh, with a beard when he's in Russia training. <laughs> It makes me think a bit. I'm seeing some of these promotional pictures for uh, The Expendables 3 comes out uh, this summer. And in the pictures, uh, the character of Barney, I don't, I forget the last name, played by Stallone, does not have his goatee. He's clean-shaven. Hmm. Well, the, the, the Rocky beard from 4, I mean, it's all part of this mountain man image that they call yes. for that sequence. In contrast to the cold technological um, machine that Ivan Drago is, and you know, and Rocky trains by you know chopping wood and lifting up people in ox carts, whereas you know Drago is on all these machines and getting injections. There's a real kind of idea of like this purity of the body that Stallone represents, and he represents it in lots of his movies, um, not just Rocky Four, but he he really represents it in Rocky Four. And I think the imagery goes even deeper than that because I mean they're they're making they're making Rocky sort of the the Americans American because when when we get him training in Russia you know he's not you know he doesn't just have that mountain man look he has a pioneer look he is surviving right. in the wilderness yeah. he's he's demonstrating the Protestant work ethic uh, you know all all these all these things that are that are sort of part of of the various American ideals are all getting channeled through Rocky at that during those scenes. And at the place where he, he trains in Russia, they put him, like, in the worst place possible, out in the mountains. It's not it, – so it makes a contrast. Uh, even And he has the guys that are trying to – these, like, thugs that want to pick him off at some point. Yeah, and the, and the, yeah, he said against the pure-driven snow. Yes, right. Which I mean, Paul, which Paul Lee hilariously falls into several times. I don't know about hilariously, <laughs> but <laughs> – yeah, uh, I do want to take a moment. I forgot to mention at the top of the show, our theme song is written and performed by Mark with a C. His website is markwiththec.com. The sequel cast is a member of the Battleship Pretension podcast fleet. Check out other film and TV podcasts at battleshippretension.com. And our website is sequelcast.com. All right, so more. Uh, Thrasher, is there anything about Rocky Four you'd like to talk about that we have not covered? Well, actually, we, we talked about, you know, Dra- Drago's training and it's, um, well, I like- Sort of two things related to to Drago that I wanted to go over because you uh, it had been mentioned that you know as part of Drago's training we see him get any in, we see him get in these injections and and I always wonder when I see that is he just getting B twelve shots or is or is he getting steroid or growth hormone injections and you know if if so why why aren't isn't there any drug testing before the bout that it, it always seemed like. It, it always seemed like they. It implies steroids or growth hormones, which means that Drago is cheating. And if he's cheating, he's not a worthy opponent for Rocky. And it makes me actually less invested in the fight. That's an interesting way to look at it. I hadn't thought of it as making him a less worthy opponent. Um, I always looked at it as it just makes him more superhuman. And, and related, related to superhuman, and, and I know because I know I know that. That Drago is supposed to be this sort of you know, Russian Superman, but he really is much more like a Nazi Superman. I mean, he looks like an Aryan god. Uh, he he right. seems to be the result of of truly inhumane science. Right. It, it feels like they're they're kind of in the, in their rush to make him this kind of nasty uh, Soviet opponent. They're making him much more Nazi than Bolshevik. Yeah, and and. The idea of him as a, as a thing manufactured uh, is really comes through really strongly too. You know, like in in the fight with Drago and Apollo, Drago is pretty much just taking it, right? And he only lets loose when his manager or, or trainer or creator um, basically cues him to do it. 
you know, there'll be these cutaways to him, and I don't know if he gestures or shouts, but then it cuts to Drago, and then Drago does it. And you really get the sense of, of Drago as this sort of puppet or, or an automaton under, some, under someone else's control, right? Which, of course, makes sense because Rocky is the one who has, you know, the will and the human spirit, not whoever he's fighting. So uh, in, in, in this essay I have coming out, I refer to, because of that, I refer to Drago as the Manchurian heavyweight. Because he really is like this, sure. this like Manchurian candidate in a boxing ring, you know. Who, uh, it's just it's kind of crazy. There's a bit of the Frankenstein monster in there too, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And this actually uh, on another detail that's always kind of stuck with me is you know the 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 beating he lays down on Apollo Creed is what kills Apollo Creed. Does he have diplomatic immunity? Because wouldn't that technically be manslaughter or? Or, or in professional boxing, do you like sign a waiver? So yeah, that, I, I don't know, think if that's dies that's of your injuries. No one. My brother actually uh, is a is part of the boxing world, and he's he's um, been the ring announcer for fights where someone has ended up dying, oh, and wow. uh, as a result of of the beating that they took. Um, yeah, I think usually it's it's not a matter for the authorities, except for the one righteous authority, that is Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think um, Apollo's death in, in Rocky IV is pretty affecting, but it doesn't quite hit me as much as Mickey's in Rocky III. And I don't I would know. agree. What? I agree. I yeah. feel the same way. I don't know. Mickey is such a, a warm character. In retrospect, Stallone has even said he wish he had not killed uh, Mickey off so quickly. Um, and Apollo's... Well, also, the, yeah. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, go on. Well, also, you know, when Mickey dies... It triggers this this real outpouring of grief from Rocky. That mm. you know, for all of the series' silliness and and that movie's silliness in particular, I've I've always felt and this could just be a personal thing that that moment where Rocky is is over his is lying over his body and then to a lesser extent at the funeral is really genuinely affecting. And yes, it it, it does affect Rocky and it affects the the where the story goes from there, but it's not. I don't know, it's not as mechanical as Apollo's death in four, where you know, it's like Apollo's death is the catalyst that gets Rocky to fight Drago. And that's almost all it is. Um, because really, and I think part of that is because what, what, what is bound up in Mickey's death is this relationship. Yes. Um, and what these two people mean to each other and have meant to each other. What's bound up in Apollo's death is this weird you know, sense of nationalism and pride that just doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, like at, at, at his funeral when Rocky talked about, you know, what he lived for and what he died for. Maybe since I'm not, I've never been a huge sports fan, but I'm always like, what? as many times as I've seen the movie, I'm always saying, well, what exactly did he live for? And what exactly did he die for? Because it all seems kind of silly. The movie yes. just wants to, like, move on so quickly to the next montage that you don't get the moment of, uh, of grief. That you had in Rocky Three, right? Yeah. What What you'd probably need to do is 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 give give Apollo kind of kind of a slower death, you know, so he and Rocky can have a heart to heart, you know, in the hospital, and Apollo's last words can be, "I want you to fight him" or, or something like that. You know, I, <laughs> right. I would like a, like I I want Apollo to be the catalyst as he's dying. I don't want his death to be the catalyst. Yeah. Um... But I guess you know, it depends on, on what is it that these deaths are designed to do or, or intended to do. I mean, with Rocky Three, I think you could argue that with Mickey's death, the movie actually kind of stops for a minute. Uh, I mean, again, yeah, it does affect Rocky going forward, and and, um, uh, you know, and, and there are things that happen in the movie that have to happen um, and can only happen because, because of Mickey's death, but it still feels like the movie stops for a minute to sort of acknowledge this. And Rocky IV, I mean, it just, to me, it just doesn't feel that way. It just feels like it is there to push the buttons um, of the plot. It's, it's, just, it's, it's so much, like I said, it's very, it feels very mechanical. Because remember, Rocky didn't even want Apollo to fight Drago. You know, he says, you know, that's not us no more. So, you know, why would he do this? It really doesn't make sense. And, you know, to rub salt, you know, why would he risk depriving his, his, wife of a husband and his son of a father to do this. It's just ridiculous. And the 
rubbing salt into the wound is the fact that he does this on Christmas, which of course is, you know, all full of symbolism to the audience. What the hell is he doing? He and his wife doing going to Russia for this fight and leaving their kid home alone with like for a sleepover on Christmas. That's just cold. Yeah. The use of Christmas, it, it seems very bizarre. It just it it seems like they they want to give it a date with significance, but mm-hmm. they go straight to Christmas. But I feel like bearing on on the film if it's gonna be if it's gonna be on that day. Well, I think it was wasn't it uh, Thanksgiving for the first movie. Although there's an interesting moment where yes. it, I think originally it's actually supposed to be July fourth, um, but I'm not positive. Um, they sort of there's a little bit of slippage there. But yeah, it's it's about ceremony. It's about ritual. Um, you know, and there's and there's lots of Christmas imagery um, in Cobra as well. You know, it's it's there are these sort of ritualistic and and even messianic things that that Stallone loves to hang on on his movies or build his movies around. I mean that that speech at the end does not feel like a speech that Rocky would say. Rocky always comes across to me as as he's not the brightest guy in the room. He has a lot of heart, but. And the whole speech about, gee, you know, we should all be friends. Uh, what if, if I can better? change, you can change, we all can change. Right, that could be a speech from uh, Rambo, perhaps. But, <laughs> but Rocky, I, I don't think it, it quite fits. Um, Remember, though, Rock, Rocky's a successful athlete now. He can hire speech writers. I like to imagine <laughs> that he hired a speech writer to write a victory speech and there a concession go. speech. And he can bring out the victory speech. Well, let's give a rating to Rocky IV before moving on to the show. Uh, so, um, Eric, out of five stars, what would you give Rocky IV? Oh, man. Um, as a piece of filmmaking, I'd have to give it two. As a piece of um, America, I'd have to give it five. Mm. You know, it's a movie that I would lock in a time. If I needed to show people 50 years from now what movies were like in the 80s, what yes. filmmaking was like in the 80s, Rocky <laughs> IV is going in that time capsule sure. with Cobra. <laughs> Thrasher, you know, I was when we began this episode. I thought I was going to give it a low rating, but it it occurs to me, um, despite what flaws this movie has, and I actually looking back, I don't think they're really flaws. They're just things that ground it in its time period. I'm going to give this movie a four. Looking oh. back on it, I've <laughs> always enjoyed watching it, even when it's bombastic, even when it's ham fisted, even when it's crazy like with the introduction of the robot i've been so thoroughly entertained and i and i you know i have so much goodwill for rocky i've got to give this movie a four well you, know, you said something when you were talking before, uh, at the top of the show about um about seeing it on amc so many times you know i i think you have to go back to when the movie was released and what it and what it did to audiences then and there Right, because I mean that's really how it was supposed to be experienced. Um, and I remember vividly seeing it um, opening. I think it was opening weekend um, with a few friends and, and one of my friends' mothers. And this is one of the most vivid movie-going memories I have. We were in the theater, and there was kind of like this stage in front of the theater. Um, it sort of sloped upwards, and during the fight between Rocky and Drago, this guy was like. I guess middle-aged guy got out of his seat and was crawling up the stage to the screen to touch the screen. Huh. That's how, wow. you know, and, and it's really like Eddie, I think it's Eddie Murphy raw in, in Eddie Murphy raw. He has a bit about, um, the galvanizing effect of, of the last Rocky movie on the audience. I mean, that, kind of connection. I think it's easy with distance and t- with time and distance to sort of laugh at, at, at some of the, and dismiss some of the things in, in Rocky four, but you do have to remember just how much, um, how galvanizing it was, um, apart from how much money it made. Sure. Um, I do think one moment that it is effective, uh, before that last fight is you hear the Russian national anthem, which yeah, to me has always sounded sort of creepy <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and just sort of goes on and everyone's staring at Rocky and it's, uh, it builds up some suspense for that fight. Well, uh, now let's um, – and I, I would give it two and a half out of five, I think. Uh, you get, I think that the fighting is, is good, but um, it is more of a cartoon, I think, than the previous uh, three films. 
So uh, let's do pitch a sequel. So let's pretend like Rocky Five and Rocky Six never happened. If we had to pitch a sequel to Rocky Four, uh, what would it be? Uh, I would like to begin. I was thinking about this at work today. I think so. After Rocky Four, Rocky comes home. His his brains are so pummeled by even Drago that he uh, he says I love you to his son and he dies. Meanwhile, on the plane, right behind uh, Rocky's plane, is uh, the wife of Ivan Drago, and she wants she wants revenge. She's actually a fighter herself, mixed martial arts. But uh, but Rocky's dead. She can't fight Rocky, so she challenges Adrian, Rocky's wife. So it, so it would be a girl fight between uh, Talia Shire and Brigitte Nielsen. But this is back. This would be back at the time when Brigitte Nielsen was like hot and not uh, not crazy. With the flavor flavor and being all the reality shows, <laughs> so it would be sort of like a, a girl fight, and uh, that—that's my pitch a sequel for Rocky Five. Uh, Thrasher, what do you have? Okay, so my sequel, you know, uh, Rocky, you know, retur- returns to America, and you know, he's inspired. He's inspired so many people, you know. P- uh, the people are boxing more. People are exercising more. You know, everybody's just kind of gathered around around uh, the messianic figure, which is Rocky. And then one day, Paulie's robot comes up to Rocky and says, "Rocky, I wish to know the thrill of victory. I wish to fight. Please train me." And then a referee sort of throws down the book and goes, "I don't see nothing in the rule books. It says a robot can't." be a boxer <laughs> so rocky becomes the manager and trainer for the world's first robot boxer uh and this infuriates the boxing world so much that clubber lang comes out of wherever he's been <laughs> since rocky since rocky three uh and he gets trained by drago's people and is made into a cybernetic super soldier and he goes into the ring with rocky's robot and all they all and, and and the robot it's just the robot but with boxing gloves fighting this massive cybernetic Mr. Mm. T and it's just this crazy fight with all sorts of crazy high tech weapons that is my rocky 5 the thing my rocky 5 was that i had two actually one is that rocky has to fight the robot when the robot leads the robot uprising oh that's nice. okay robots uh, change i, I <laughs> I also thought we could go another way and my Rocky and my other Rocky five might've been um, more of a, of a early 80s drama where Rocky, we spend most of the movie in family therapy because of how Rocky gambled with his life and left his kid alone at Christmas mm. and Judd Hirsch plays the therapist. So I don't know if it's, if it's exactly Rocky five or ordinary people too. Gotcha. You know, Rocky would have a lot of talk about to to a therapist. I wouldn't mind seeing one of those scenes. That would be pretty uh, pretty neat. There. Uh, let's. So we'll move on now to sequel news. Um, I was trying to look over some some current like sequel or remake news out there, and I see they're doing a sequel to the live action Tim Burton film Alice in Wonderland, uh, which I was not a huge fan of. But this one is going to be directed by. Um, Oh, what's his name? James Bobbin, who directed the uh, the Muppet movie from a few years ago. Doesn't James Bobbin sound like the name of someone who would end up in Wonderland? Hello, I'm James Bobbin. <laughs> I'll leave him a flower, like, I do, I do. He half sounds like a Muppet. <laughs> he does, he does. And uh, and this sequel is supposed to take place, instead of in Wonderland, it takes place in Underland, which I don't even know what that means. Um, Didn't they already b- burn out that gag in the first one? That, that Wonderland was a mispronunciation of Underland? Oh, you're right. You know, I blocked out so much of that first film. I was very excited to see it. I liked uh, like Tim Burton, even though he's been a bit of a disappointment lately. He played the Joker. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was just a bizarre film that made almost a billion dollars. So, uh... I thought it was one of the best Danny Elfman scores uh, oh, oh, had oh. in a long time. Yeah, no, the music I, I um, thought was... Was good, and the, the design of uh, I thought the cat with Stephen Fry's the voice was pretty good. I think visually it was a it was a treat, but I just wish with the story they might have done something something different. So um, so I don't know. I think I would have rather have seen a sequel to that uh, Oz movie from uh, last year, 
But maybe th- maybe that'll come. Who knows? Um, is there a piece of sequel news that's uh, appealing to you, Eric? Oh, is there? Yes. A piece? Um, well, that's a good question. I mean, they're always... How about this? Any sequels coming out this summer that look interesting, like the new Captain America or uh, um, whatever else is coming out? You know, can you do me a favor? Yes. Um, th- this is I, I, one of the things I do. This is sort of not for the interview. Um, I actually work in movie advertising, and oh, okay. so I worked on a lot of the campaigns for some of these movies. So it's a little awkward for me to talk about them. Okay, we can you can just not do something. That's Sorry. fine. I guess so. Right, so you asked about sequel news. Uh, I guess, like everybody else, I'm—I don't know if I'm excited or looking forward or curious, but I'm certainly paying attention to the new Star Wars, especially with uh, sure. what people are talking about that Adam Driver from Girls yes, is going right. to be the villain. Which you know, J.J. Abrams has always had a great eye for casting, so that could be really cool. I, I guess this means we'll finally see Adam Driver with a shirt on. I, <laughs> I can only hope. Um, so, I, you know, it, I mean, yeah. and, and the other, and one of the sequels I've been really excited about for a long time is Mad Max Fury Road. Mm, um, sure, and I'm right. just, I, You know, with all the talk about Star Wars and Avengers 2 and, and all these big franchises um, uh, continuing on, uh, I really hope that, um, that there's enough bandwidth left for Mad Max because um, the fact that George Miller is coming back to direct it or, or has come back to direct it is just so exciting to me. Um, and you know, I'd love if Mel Gibson was in, was in it also. But as I've been you know, saying, if you have to choose, if you're making a Mad Max movie and you have to choose between having George Miller or Mel Gibson, George Miller is who you go with. Um, it'd be great to have them both, but the fact that Miller is back is just so thrilling to me. Sure, I mean they've been trying to get that movie off the ground for over a decade, so it's nice yeah. to see they were finally able to. To get it made, and I, I think um, you know we covered Mad Max in the sequel cast, I think a few years ago, and uh, it was uh, those movies really hold up. Yeah, and I still, and I, I write about Thund- Road Warrior and Thunderdome a lot in in my book, and I, I think Thunderdome is such an underrated gem, um, a crazy movie, totally flawed movie. You know, whenever people find out how much I love it and they tell me everything that's wrong with it, it's like, yeah, you're right. You know, th- th- there are big problems with that movie. You know, Road Warrior is this kind of tight, perfect machine, um, and the vision of of the Road Warrior to me is is not that groundbreaking or that it doesn't really push anything. Um, it's basically a post-apocalyptic chain, and it does that so perfectly. And I love the movie. Thunderdome is doing this other, just really weird and beautiful and a very emotional. Thing. I mean, all the stuff with the kids, I actually find very emotional, and, and I just love Thunderdome. Totally underrated. Um, and it'd be nice if, if, if Fury Road sort of reflects, uh, shines a light back on Thunderdome, and people can, uh, can give that one another chance. Yeah, it's really impressive uh, in all the Mad Max movies how much the scope expands, and yet it all still feels grungy. Mm-hmm. It's that consistent sort of tone, even though you get more uh, world-building between the different films that makes it a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. So, Thrasher, have you, did you see one of the, the trailers for uh, Captain America 2, The Winter Soldier? Uh, yes, I have seen several trailers. I haven't seen the most recent one, but I already know I'm going to see the movie, so they really don't need to try to sell it to me anymore. So I haven't read that uh, that comic book story arc. Have you? Is that a pretty good run that they're basing this no, off of, do you think? No, actually I haven't. Oh, okay. Although I do know who the Winter Soldier is in the comics, mm. and I don't know if they'd be able to pull that off in the movie. I, I kind of hope they do some flashback stuff in this second one, because I really like all the period of World War II stuff in that do. first one. I kind of do, and I would love to see more of the Howling Commandos. Yes. I, I wish the Howling Commandos had their own movie. I think Kevin Feige said something about how all the Marvel Phase 2 movies were going to be... We're going we're to tackle a different genre. Hmm, okay. And I think that's... And that, and that Captain America the Winter Soldier is the 70s political thriller. Nice. I think it's such a cool way to map out the franchise. Um, in a totally strange free association way, it reminds me of, of the old Battlestar Galactica, where, you know, the original from the 70s, where, like, 
every episode was a different genre. You had like your war movie episode and your Western episode and your film noir episode. Um, I mean, the fact that, that Marvel has mapped out this phase of its, of its franchises that way, I think is really, really cool. And, you know, the fact that Robert Redford is in it goes such a long way to connecting it to that, you know, that 70s, you know, Sidney Lumet, Alan Pakula kind of thing. Definitely. They've been smart with the casting, and uh, you're right, tonally a lot of them do feel sort of different. I'm very intrigued by Guardians of the Galaxy. (laughs) Oh, I can't wait. And I mean, totally. That looks like totally. That looks like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or something. So you don't see a whole lot of combinations of a comedy and science fiction. So it should be an interesting little film. Or right a fantastic big film. Yes, sure. Yeah, no, I don't think it's going to be small scale or anything. Um. So, uh, Eric, is there any books or movies you've watched lately? Um, let's see, what have we done lately? Is there um, one you'd like to talk about? Let me think. Um, well, uh, for Valentine's Day, my wife wanted me to take her to see the remake of RoboCop. Oh, okay. And, um, so, you know, I remember when the original was on and I was in the kitchen doing dishes while she was watching it. And I sort of realized I'm doing the dishes while my wife is watching RoboCop. <laughs> and it was sort of like, hmm. I've lost the battle, but won the war. <laughs> I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> um, and you know, I thought that the remake was valid. Um, it did what remakes should do. It had its own ideas. It had its own identity, its own tone. Uh, it had its own strengths. It had its own weaknesses. You know, the things about that movie that worked and the things that movie that didn't work about it that didn't work were not just in reference to the original. Um, and, but it did have connections to the original that were a lot of fun. So am I going to see that movie 50 times the way I've seen the original? Probably not. But, you know, it was a, they took a swing, and I think they, they connected. The casting on that certainly looked interesting. You know, my, my wife, um, that story reminded me of, uh, my wife had never seen RoboCop, but we went. We uh, the local theater used to show old movies once a month, and they do sort of highlight reels beforehand. And because they were showing Total Recall, they just showed a clip from RoboCop where uh, the original one, where Ed Two Hundred Nine shoots up the corporate meeting. And my wife had never seen the movie. She's watching the scene out of context, and her reaction was, "Oh no, those poor men are getting shot." She felt really uh, sad. <laughs> and I think you know, watching the. It, as part of the whole movie and, and Verhoeven's sort of tone, you could probably see it more as satire, but on its own, I mean, it is a pretty violent sequence. And I, well, the interesting thing about that sequence is that you know, it was one of the sequences that had to be cut down um, to go from what was then X rating to, to the R rating. And I don't remember exactly if it was Verhoeven who said this or somebody else, but made the interesting observation that in the long version of the scene, it does become black comedy. Because it's just so absurd. When you cut it down, you make it more realistic, and that makes it more horrifying. And mm, right, you know, and and the, I mean, RoboCop. It, you know, it's, it's a totally twisted and sick and wonderful movie. The original. And one of the really cool things about it is that all of these major action sequences or, or sequences of violence, they all have a different emotional quality. Like that one, black comedy. Um, when Murphy's getting shot down, it's horrific. Other times it's heroic. Sometimes it's tragic. Like when, when the police are shooting down Murphy in the, in the OCP parking structure, you know, it's really heartbreaking. You know, you, the fact that you could take violence and give it all these different emotional shades, uh, I think is, is part of that movie's genius. Right. And you have the character of Robocop who physically has very stiff movements and most of his face is covered and that you can still feel. Mm-hmm for a, a character that's uh, in that sort of a, an outfit doesn't have much to work with is uh, is, is pretty neat. Um, now, thing, are they making a sequel to the remake? Uh, you know, I don't know. I think once all the money comes from overseas, I think it'll do better overseas, but I haven't heard I, anything. I think a sequel is inevitable. Hmm. You know, they made a sequel to that uh, Planet of the Apes movie um, a few years ago that I thought was a pretty good reboot. So, 
We'll just have to see, but I've not heard anything about RoboCop 2. Um, one thing I have been enjoying recently is getting into Season 2 of Hannibal, which looks at the Hannibal Lecter character when he's younger. And it's it's very dark. It's surprisingly gruesome for a network TV show. I'm not quite sure how they get away with some of the stuff they show. Uh, but it, it's a fun continuation of those characters. And it almost feels like it's a bit too smart to be a, a drama on network TV. I almost wish it was on HBO. So I'm glad it got a second season. We'll see if it gets a third. I've heard the ratings are kind of middling, but then you look at the stats and the people that watch it are people that spend money on expensive products, and that makes it appealing for advertisers. Uh, I think it's a it's a classy show, and it, it's certainly better than that Hannibal Rising um, movie that came out seven years ago about Hannibal the college years. Um, <laughs> So, uh, that when he was with, with Zach and Screecher and the rest of the gang? Yes, right. He uh, Hannibal has a Screech over for, for a dinner party. And uh, Screech is the main course. <laughs> if only. <laughs> Think of all the suffering, the needless suffering that would have saved. Oh, yes. Well, the actor that played Screech is quite an asshole. On um, a celebrity, what is it? There's, gee, ten years ago or something. There's a celebrity like uh, boot camp show. Oh, was that Stars or in Stripes? No, no, no. It was just it, it was like fat celebrities trying to lose weight, and the guy that played Screech was on there, and got Dustin into, Diamond. Dustin Diamond, yes, and got into screaming matches with the the guy that runs the show, who's sort of like a Full Metal Jacket screaming type uh, commanding officer. So. That's uh, that used to be on, on Hulu, I think. But that, if you can look up highlights on YouTube, that might be worth your time. Uh, Thrasher, what's something you've been enjoying? Well, I actually just today finished a fantastic novella uh, by Larry Niven called "The Magic Goes Away," which I actually had found uh, at the local peddler's mall. Our local peddler's mall gets some great sci-fi paperbacks, and for two bucks, they had the illustrated edition of this novella with a cover by Boris Vallejo and interior illustrations by Esteban Morato, who worked on a lot of Savage Sword of Conan comics. And it's a fantastic novel. Do you find the illustrations add to it? Overall, yes. However, some of them were sort of placed in such a way that it kind of broke it rather than complimenting. Because all the illustrations are fantastic and complement the text very, very well. However, some of their placements are kind of awkward and kind of breaks up the reading of the book. And, and so the chat, so some of the chapters don't flow as well as they should. Cause in the middle of a really good scene, you kind of have to stop to look at a page or two of illustrations, hmm. but it's really, but it's really fascinating. It's a swords and sorcery novel, uh, where some magic users find out far too late that magic is a non-renewable resource and the world is running out. And so, uh, and so, a warlock, a sorceress, and a Native American medicine man uh, team up with a Greek soldier to go on this quest to try to find some new untapped source of magic. Interesting. So, Thrasher, that takes us to our last segment of the show. Uh, why don't you explain to uh, Eric and also our listeners what the Paul Goebel Memorial Mashup is? Yes, the Paul Goebel Show Memorial Mashup. It's a feature we inherited from the Paul Goebel Show by decree of the king of TV himself, Mr. Paul Goebel. And what it is is I take two uh, impersonations that I'm not necessarily any good at, bundle them together into one impersonation, which I am certainly not any good at, and Matt and our guests have to figure out who, who I'm impersonating. And the character I'm impersonating is going to be a combination of those two other people's names. Wow. So can you get... And, and, and so are these yeah. fictional people you're impersonating or real people or uh, both? I can, it can be real people. It can be characters. Wow. Uh, but it's like a, okay. a sort of a person connected to pop culture. Like, for instance, uh, last week the mashup was, uh, was Katy Perry Mason. So I had the lawyer Perry Mason <laughs> singing about a trial he was conducting to the tune of a Katy Perry song. <laughs> Under California law, it's inadmissible. <laughs> all right, this will this will be tricky. You got your ready, Thrasher. Yep. Go. 
All right, I hope you're ready to paint. Put on your one painting glove and get ready to paint. Shamod, hey, I'm gonna throw some blue on the canvas. Woohoo! I'm gonna throw some red. Hey, Shamod, Lisa Marie, hand me a bucket of orange paint. I'm gonna throw some orange paint on the canvas. Michael I'm Jackson boundaries. I'm changing the art world. I think you had that. Can you repeat that? Michael Eric? Jackson. Michael Jackson Pollock. That is right. Oh, great. Yes. <laughs> Tell everybody what I win. Uh, you win my hearty congratulations. <laughs> Fantastic. You know, I... Uh... Did you have that figured out, Mike? Mike? Who the hell is Mike, Matt? Uh, I, uh, yeah, it took me a minute. I, Michael Jackson, I got. I was trying to think of the, the artist. But as soon as Eric said it, I'm like, of course, Michael Jackson. I actually was working backwards. At first, I was thinking it was a combination of somebody and Bob Ross. Oh, right, sure. But then Michael Jackson <laughs> became too prominent. I got to do I, – I, I should come up with one that involves Bob Ross. He'd be a good one, too. I, um, you know, I, I would have thought – Is there a, something to Bob Ross from Friends? <laughs> <laughs> it could work. Uh, I was thinking with um, – I had a thought, and then I lost it. I'm going about four hours of sleep right here. So um, – been chopping wood and, and pulling chopping wood, <laughs> right? Uh, making making Russian snowman and kicking them down. Are you gonna lift me and thrash her up in an ox cart? That that that's coming. I got a the ox cart's on the way. It's stuck in the in the blizzard. I got to go and walk twenty miles up the uphill in the snow. That'd get... be a good psychological test. Would you rather be Rocky in that scene or somebody in the cart? Jeez, oh, <laughs> yeah, because at least you know you exercise, you feel warm. Uh, good, good question. And you know, Paulie has to weigh quite a bit. I mean, I I get quite nervous in the scene, in the montage where Stallone is uh, doing sit-ups while being suspended, and Paulie is the one holding his legs. <laughs> it's like I don't know if I'd trust Paulie in that scene. You know, man, I just realized your Rocky sequel pitch didn't have Paulie as the central character. <laughs> it did not. I in the past uh, pitch of sequels, I've focused on Paulie, but you know, I've, I've given Paulie his, his moment to shine. Maybe there's a, there's yeah. a sequel where like he and the robot merge, like the robot turns into powered oh, armor and he geez. becomes a superhero. Iron Polly. Oh. God, if he had that robot strength, just imagine what he would have done to that pinball machine. Yes. Oh, oh and that man. third one, yeah. Interesting stuff. Well, pretty cool. Well, Eric, thanks for coming on the sequel cast here. Thanks for having me. It was great. It was a treat having you on. Anytime. And um so the the book that you contributed an essay to it's called the ultimate Stallone the ultimate, reader right the, the ultimate Stallone reader um, I'm one of the uh, scholars who contributed um, essays to it and it's available I think in April um, and it's uh, there's a lot of really interesting uh, and well researched stuff in it so I think uh, it is the ultimate Stallone anthology what can I say it's fantastic and I see right I think here it's it might from be the only Columbia University Press. Edited That's by right. Chris Homeland. I just looked up mm-hmm. the, the art, right? I believe the art, uh, at least the cover it's showing on here, it looks like the Rocky Three poster. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's not the poster, but it's his it, it's, image from the Rocky right. Three yeah. poster. Yeah, it's his uh, um, glistening body, which Stallone is never afraid to show in movies he directs. Right. And he's <laughs> never afraid to talk about it, about how he got that body in the press. And that's something I, th- I write a lot about in the essay as well, is, is that the, the marketing and the publicity... Uh, surrounding Stallone and um, his training regiments and how he talks about himself um, in advance of the movie's release. It's, it's this whole sort of constellation of things that all are about the glory of Sylvester Stallone. Um, Stallone also likes to describe his characters as they're like fighters getting back into the ring almost every time. <laughs> to remind people of his successful Rocky franchise. Um, yeah, I mean, so much of his career is, is about that. I mean, the um, one of the taglines for First Blood, uh, I think it's in the tr- in the trailer. Yeah, uh, was this time he's fighting for his life. You know, Stallone. This time he's fighting for his life. Mm. Right. There and had that... been no last time for Rambo. Right. This is the first movie, so it's sure. clearly a reference to Rocky. And what one of the uh, one of the promotional posters for uh, Rambo Three is just a, a glistening. Uh, I forget. It might be an illustration, uh, come to think of it. But it's of Stallone's shoulders looking on his back, and it says Rambo's back. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. So uh, he, uh, yeah, Stallone uh, loves uh, his his 
his own body. He's he's proud of himself. Um, his his eyebrows look quite fascinating lately. <laughs> uh, he might have had some work done. I have no idea, but hey, good uh, good for him. He can afford it. Uh, so. So yes, the uh, <laughs> the book is the ultimate Stallone reader, right. uh, or that's the anthology, and yes. um, my book in which, in which I discuss uh, other some other Stallone movies is um, Action Speaks Louder, Violent Spectacle, and the American Action Movie. Yeah, you know I have to watch Cobra. I've never seen it all the way. I I need to get in the right mood, I think, for it. But I, I did catch some of Nighthawks the other day, and that one's pretty interesting. Yeah, Nighthawks is a really interesting kind of transitional movie. Mm-hmm. Um, for him it's it's not what you'd expect his character is really much more of a pacifist and it's and movies is more of an indictment of police force um or at least a an examination of it than it is or or a questioning of it than it is the sort of gung-ho you know paramilitarism that that cobra represents but you know cobra is that 80s time capsule movie for sure um it tells you everything about what was going on in filmmaking in mainstream filmmaking at the which actually, as I understand it, was originally going to be the genesis of Beverly Hills Cop, because apparently the character's full name is Axel Cobretti. No kidding, huh? Huh? You know, and I mean, Stallone was offered Beverly Hills Cop famously, and then turned yeah, it down. Yeah, turned it down to do Rhinestone. Um, <laughs> good stuff. Well, thank thanks again for coming on, Eric. I'll send you an email when the show comes out. It should be in about two weeks. Great, I look forward to it. Thanks for having yeah. me, and, you know, anytime. Sure. All right, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, take care. See you, man. Bye. Bye. Well, that was pretty good. Oh, yeah. So any last uh, things you'd you'd want to talk about? No, just that uh, nothing pressing, just that I noticed for while gathering information for the sequel news segment that Gary Marshall is working on a Broadway musical version of Pretty Woman. Oh, was there any... Big songs in that first movie, except for Pretty Woman. Pretty Woman. <laughs> Pretty Woman. There's Love also the song in that dream. opera they see, but I, no, I mean, I'm, they'll be writing original music for it. I'm sure. Well, that, I mean, it's not like them doing musicals based off of films is anything new. It just seems like if you're going to have a big, big ass budget musical, it's got to be based on some, some property. You know, you, you can imagine grandmas going to the Big White Way or going to see a touring show of Pretty Woman. Oh, it's with the nice lady, even though she's a <laughs> prostitute. And it's a PG film, okay. Well, well, the thing is, like, she, I, I, there's nothing wrong with her being a prostitute. There's everything wrong with a man being an investment banker. I just like how uh, Jason Alexander, George Costanza himself, is in that film, in Pretty Woman. Oh, really? Yeah, and I think he tries to rape uh, Julia Roberts or something. It's uh, that's an image that I will try to scrub from my brain. <laughs> Jerry, Jerry, you won't believe what happened. I almost got arrested. So, Thrasher, do you have any new uh, uh, books coming out with the drive-through RPG? I am. I'm working on a few things. I guess the two the two things to be on the lookout for are uh, if you if you like Pathfinder and Paizo, look for uh, people uh, people of the river. I did some work on that, which I think is going to be coming out in the next three months or so if everything works uh, proper. Although I don't I don't know. Because they they haven't shown me a release date, I'm just assuming based on past experience with Paizo. Uh, and the uh, the most recent uh, product on Drive Through RPG, the random the Jester Dragons random brothel generator, is after over a month still in the top 100 small press listing. So it's actually it's a, it's it's a book and people love it. Yeah, and you can also follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. You can follow me on Twitter at uh, SequelCast, and probably the best way to get in contact with us is Facebook.com slash SequelCast. I had a pretty cool Rocky-related thing happening on Twitter. So on the Facebook page, I've been doing these original sort of cartoons uh, on the movies that we see as the banner image. And for the Rocky 2 one, I did a bit of a uh, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out homage and uh, Mm -hmm. put it on on Twitter, and it got uh, favorited and retweeted by... Let me look up the guy's name. One of the actors from the Rocky Broadway show, Wallace Smith. He plays oh, the part cool. of Apollo's trainer in the show. That's awesome. So and he said he really liked it, which was uh, always fun to read. I think it did a pretty good Apollo likeness. I'm not crazy about my Rocky likeness, but um, in the sketch. Well, I think those are cool. Those are just part of the sequel cast aesthetic. I think so. You know, I spend... Sometime on those, but not uh, not a lot. 
not an inordinate amount of time. Right. So, um, and if you happen to be in the metro Portland area, every Tuesday, 8 to 10 p.m., go to Wilsonville, Oregon. It's about uh, 18 miles outside of town and head over to the Ram, 8 to 10 p.m. Tuesdays, where I host a pub quiz for geeks who drink. They've, uh, it's been uh, a lot of fun doing that. We have a visual round every week. And uh, this time the visual round was drawings of penises. And you had to name what artistic, uh, what artist the style was influenced by. It was sort of, you know, a takeoff of, uh, it's off a website where it has pictures of penises, but it's like in Whistler's Mother, for instance, and you had to name the artist. <laughs> so it, it takes a lot, even though I'm the host of this stuff, uh, I, I don't write the question, but it, it took me a lot of balls to come up to people and say, hey, you want to play this, waving around pictures of penises uh, in a bar. It's, uh, that's a very strange uh, thing to do. The sequel cast is a Hipster Goblin production. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 